Well, reason for the call today, John, is... Welcome to Internal Use Only. Something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Got a minute? A podcast for wholesalers. Always be closing. Always be closing. By wholesalers. Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. Okay, before we get started, I have one question. Has anyone here passed a Series 7 exam? I have a Series 7 license. Good for you. You can get out. Let's cut to the chase. Here's your host, Dan Sullivan. Welcome back to another episode of the Internal Use Only Podcast. It's January. I hope that everybody had a great new year and had the chance to recharge before returning to work. For us in sales, that means we start the year fresh at a 0% year-to-date for our sales goal. And of course, here at the podcast, a clean slate of episodes for the new calendar year. We kick off 2024 with an in-depth discussion about the future of the internal sales desk with Mary Ann Doggett. As the founder of Interactive Communications, Marianne has consulted and coached sales teams at some of the industry's largest and most well-known asset management firms. She shares her perspective on everything past, present, and future with regard to the role of the internal, citing examples from past coaching engagements. If you're currently an internal or ever served as an internal, or maybe you're leading a wholesaling team today, this episode is going to hit on several topics like training, tactics, and technology, all which impact the modern role of the internal and contribute to the evolving structure of a distribution team. Before I get to the interview today, a huge thank you to everybody that submitted the first ever audience survey. I'm going to keep that link live just one more day and pick winners at the end of the month. As always, go check us out on the Instagram page to get access to the link and follow along for recent episodes and additional show notes. Also, if you've enjoyed the show, please take one second today to hit the subscribe button and to rate the show on either Apple Podcast or Spotify. Without further ado, let's send it over to our interview today with Marianne Doggett. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Marianne Doggett. Marianne, I am so excited to have you on the show. I think this is a long time in the making. So now we're finally on record here for having a great conversation about the future of the internal sales desk. I'm excited to be here because I heard uh, I continue to hear very good things about your podcast and you're kind of an unusual guy in doing this. And I think you bring a lot of benefit to the industry. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Before we even get into the state of the internal sales desk and all of the experience that you have, I did want to just talk about your current company, Interactive Communications. You have been doing this role for almost 30 years, if I, if I see the founding correctly, in 1994. And this is a very specific segment of an already pretty specific industry. So I wanted to ask you, how did you originally find a role that involves coaching sales teams for asset managers? Did you have a prior role in the industry or did you have another in that really like got you started while working with some of the biggest asset management firms in the world? Well, it's kind of a funny story. I, I worked for Citibank for a long time. I knocked on doors. I've been doing sales for a very long time. Well, I hate to say very because then it'll age me. But uh, And I was primarily in banking before this. And uh, I decided that I'd had enough of banking. And so I decided to ski for a while. 
And uh, one of the guys that I mentored actually in uh, at Citibank had gone to Fidelity and he was charged with really building what the future of internal sales should be. And he asked me if I uh, would be willing to do that job, to consult and help him build that team. And uh, I'm not supposed to say this out loud, but I will. That was actually my very first consulting job. I, I tried not to let the people at Fidelity know that. And uh, so that that was really, you know, I always wanted to specialize. And uh, probably one of the smartest people that I've ever met said to me, the most important thing you can do in your career is specialize, find a niche and get to be the expert. And that way business will come to you. And I found that to be really true. So uh, I fell in love with these internal wholesalers who at the time were just sort of walking around with headsets and, uh, you know, answering questions like, what's the NAV? And, uh, and the job was to get them to become salespeople. And uh, as opposed to the administrative assistant. So long story short, uh, work with them, along with uh, lots of other clients uh, over several years. And um, the end result of that was that we put in place the core process for the Fidelity internal sales desk that still exists today. And uh, actually, within a couple of years, they were selling more than their external wholesalers. And uh, and it was interesting because it was really a different philosophy about the national sales manager there and the sales manager of the internals. And uh, let's just say the internals had a much more forward thinking uh, sales manager. Do you feel like there's a common set of problems that you had addressed or seen over your time in this consulting role? Or does it really vary by the size? Like are, are problems different for big firms versus small firms? Yeah, big firms um, tend to say this honestly think they're more advanced um and uh and some of them are but what i find is that the big firms you know for example everybody talks about the technology that people have and the the data that you have to be able to identify the right clients i worked with a large firm a guy from a large firm coaching him very recently and I said, so how, how's the data? How does that really help you? And he said, well, we really don't use that. And, I, you know, I went, oh, my God, but all the papers are about, you know, you're getting lists and they do get lists. But the deal right now is the list that they get and wholesalers out there probably recognize this are mostly people that they don't know. So they're prospecting new people that have the ideal, uh, in quotes, persona. And um, that tends to have the wholesaler product pitch as opposed to, and, and also external wholesalers are, um, many of them are out of practice in prospecting because they have a set group of clients. And, uh, you know, you contrast the the internal sales desk with that, and, and, and that was almost exclusively prospecting in terms of, you know, smile, dial, call, and, um, and, and bring in new business and set appointments for me. So 
The internals have a little bit more advantage that have been trained and have good managers to give them the prospecting skills that uh, in some cases outshine their externals. But in answer to your question, the, the smaller firms tend to not have the resources, so they um, they need the internals to do a lot more admin work uh, than the uh, external to support the externals. And there are some pockets of, of you know some mid-sized firms that I that really recognize the um, you know the value of a sales process. You know, I worked with McQuarrie, for example, and they that, that was a firm that really recognized the um, the importance of training and and putting a sales process in place. I have gone to very large firms. And I guess I, I can say this out loud, but um, I, I did some work with with Vanguard, and Vanguard is an amazing organization. And you know, but their sales desk really their problem is, is that they have too many calls, as opposed to they don't have enough people to call. So it was kind of a whole different thing. What they were counting as sales, I said to the manager at the time, I said, boy, that's pretty easy to get high marks here. And she was amazing, the um, the sales test manager that I that I dealt with, because she also recognized that there are different parts of the conversation that need to go differently, and people needed to unlearn the skills that they uh, that had made them successful in the past. So when you say they had um, a when you say they had a number of calls, is that um, do you mean as a sales team they were saying that there's ten different kinds of calls that they can be logging into their CRM, or are you saying that because of a company like Vanguard, they have so many resources and things to talk about that they're trying to do too much, almost like spreading too wide of a net, or maybe something different that I missed there? A little bit of both. When I worked with them, they were just starting to uh, really understand segmentation and targeting and knowing which it's kind of similar to when I worked with Fidelity a while back is that uh, Fidelity was a firm that never that was the first to really do segmenting and the way that they did it was with their uh, internals and they said put your put your uh, clients into four buckets and uh, so categorize them and that way we can learn to talk to those kinds of people differently. So for example, one of the groups was mutual fund mavens. Okay, and those were people that only wanted to talk about mutual funds. So you wanted to make sure you tailored the conversation and that, you know, there were stock jocks and then there were some other bad terms for some people. <laughs> yeah, Pi- stock um, jocks, maybe Pikers was in there. I, I, can, I can imagine. Pikers is a name that I remember, but <laughs> it was so cool because, they, you know, and I have never seen even the larger firms um, grasp that from an, an internal wholesaling uh, organization as well as they did. And uh, that's why I think that all the data that's coming in today, it's great but there's not a lot of practice on it. It's like, here are the right people to call. And the missing step is, how do you talk to them differently? 
and yes. how to talk to them differently. You know, there's a whole big personalization thing that has to happen in the beginning. And personalization is not about, I know you use this fund or I know you use EFTs because that just brings it right back to the product push. And so it really requires a whole different set of questions to get into a great conversation. And it also requires the beginning of the conversation to be very different. So things like, uh, hi, I'm just, you know, people know this. I'm just calling to check in or, uh, you know, it's Marianne Doggett from so-and-so firm. Uh, Do you have a minute? No, no, I don't have a minute because I have no idea what you're going to say to me. You know, and people go, oh, you have to do that. Or how's your day going? I mean, I don't know about you, but and this is prevalent across the industry. And it's just such a simple fix. And when I see wholesalers make that change in the beginning of their conversation, they're able to get another conversation. That bleeds into the tactics of an internal wholesaler or somebody who's relying more on phone outreach, which is less of that older style with this a three-bolded pitch or, hey, can I grab your ear for a second to share our, our latest and greatest? That is not the way that I, I think any advisor out there is consuming information or wants to be communicated with. I don't know what percentage you think of cold calls we get answered today by like advisors. You got thousands of wholesalers calling, so you have a limited window anyway. The approach needs you have to have a lot more of a tailored, thoughtful reason that's going to keep somebody engaged over a phone call and even a yeah. pre-scheduled call. So it can't just but, be that here's three reasons why you need high yield. It's funny I just recorded an episode, another podcast episode this week with uh, with an allocator. So he he manages uh, a few billion dollars at a pension plan, and he's just like, I don't need any more high yield updates. Like. I, I'm good with my market commentary, but that's a lot of what the traditional attitude or thought behind wholesaling is, is that my goal is to communicate to you product information and I need to do that over a short window of time on a phone, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. No, and I think that that comes from most of the knowledge comes from product information and product training. And uh, there's the perception that Sales skills and communication skills are soft skills. So they, you know, if you don't have a lot of budget, that's the first thing that goes. And um, so, again, it depends on the culture of the firm and how much they realize that, A, that's critical. And B, the managers have to know how to do that because you have managers very often on sales desk managers that are promoted and it's here's your job and as you know that that's that's the kiss of death because they uh they they don't tend to coach they tend to tell and so this is what you should have done and that's not the way you learn and so that's where i see uh one of the biggest missteps in um, the, the whole tactics and what's going on now. And, um, and very few resources that, that teach people how to do it. There's a question that I teach, which is called the, the criteria question, which actually I asked you right in the beginning of this interview, which is what's important to you about what I talk about today. 
what's important to you? And when I get people to use that question, they just put down their headset and they go, oh, my God, that really works. Uh, you know, you have to ask it in the right place in the right time. But uh, as I say, there's there are several tactics that can make internal wholesalers and external wholesalers enormously more efficient and disqualify. I was always a big proponent of disqualifying. Find out quickly on that first call whether you should be calling this person back. Disqualifying is an un, unappreciated task of of, a, of any successful salesperson. And, and I we, we talked a moment ago about some of the, the data that's being provided. Yep. Some of yep. those lists that these advisors, not the advisors, that the home offices are providing to the wholesalers. Yep. They're charging, and correct me if I'm wrong, depending on the firm's data package, it could be upwards of a million dollars around that to get like full services. And then anybody who has an eye for their territory that's in the field can look at it and almost be like, well, no, no, no. Like the disqualification process, I feel like never, at least at any of the firms that I worked with, it was never truly addressed at a strategic level because I think the assumption is that you always want to have, in theory, all eligible advisors be clients of yours. But then in practice, that's not going to be the case. Like just because somebody uses X, Y, and Z product doesn't necessarily make them a good fit for your product or your territory. Maybe they're about to retire and they're grouped up with a team of three. So that data inconsistency always struck me as a little bit challenging and no one's willingness to disqualify prospects. So I don't know if you have any good tactics or experiences with that, but disqualifying as opposed to assuming that everybody is a prospect. My most favorite one, and it was, <laughs> I, I, I banged the drum for a long time and only a couple of firms picked it up. With, and that was for getting credit for disqualifying as soon as possible. And it, it, and basically you do what you get credit for. You do what you was counted. And so uh, disqualifying, and then obviously having a conversation about it, and it comes back to stuff that's still going on today, which are, you know, the office walkthroughs. God help me. You know, I, I thought that they were done, but, and the second worst thing are the lunch meetings, but, uh, you know, because there's just a ton of disqualified people for the lunch meetings is those that are hungry generally are just should be disqualified. <laughs> but yeah. I, you know, I used to see call sellers go and they walk down the hall and they'll give the, the little knock on the door, you know, of the of the corner office guy and they're afraid of them. You know, they, they come back and they say, you know, if you just have two seconds, I know you're busy and and they're apologizing for themselves. And of course they are because they just interrupted the person without a, an opening sentence that has nothing to do with product that might engage the advisor. Because it is, and one of the questions that I always used to have people, the, the tactics to use is when they're asking questions, aside from performance, what's important to you about, or, uh, you know, taking performance out of the way and assuming that I wouldn't be here unless I had somewhat comparable performance over time. Things change, but commodity, you know, the only difference is what you bring to them besides the product. 
And they can get so much from market commentaries and webcasts and all that stuff that you need to bring the human element that is not, I want to be your friend. Uh, because it's always, you know, you, you ask the call sellers often, what's the most important thing? And they say, relationship. And I say, to find that. Is that somebody that wants to go to a ball game with you? Or do you have anybody out there that goes to ball games with you that doesn't give you any business? I bet you have a lot of them. And I bet it's very awkward to ask them for business. And so um, at the end of the day, you're in a business and you want to very quickly find out whether this person is ever going to do business with you, may do it, but what's the time frame? And uh, or, you know what? My criteria doesn't fit what you have, you know, being, and, being confident enough to say that Yes, as, an, as a salesperson, being OK to 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 realize, like, we're probably not going to end up doing business together and we're either temporarily removing that person from your rotation or call list or marking however you need to mark that, that just it's not it's not going to be worth the effort. Yeah, I just I just coached a guy and I said, you know, OK, practice with me. Say this, say this. You know, I deal with advisors that have X amount of business on their books and can uh, potentially bring me 10% of that if I provide to them something of value that makes sense. And is, is that something you would consider? And they, because advisors don't know what, you know, oh, I could give you a little business, you know, but what's a little and what's worthwhile? And uh, firms are very clear on that. What's the asset amount that, that that makes an advisor worthwhile? But why should a wholesaler be afraid to say that? They shouldn't. And, and no, one, no one in the set, like no one in the sales role necessarily should. It does take a degree of confidence, experience, and understanding to deliver that. Yes. That's more of, I'm going to forget the framework to this, but that's almost having more of a, like a line, there's not an imbalance of power between the sales rep and whoever they're trying to sell to. So in this case, like wholesale and advisor, you want to be on the same playing field, which is like, I talk to you, like I talk to you if you meet this criteria. If, If I'm going to be providing value, then great, we should have a meeting. But if not, I don't need to be the person chasing you 200 times a year through phone and email just to have that intro intro call because it'll be a mark on my internal CRM and I get a credit for having a meeting. You know, like those are all the nuances that I'm sure you're well aware of that happen behind the scenes as to why there's so many bad first calls. But yeah, that disqualification process, you can help you can borrow what advisors do when they try to pre-fill prospective yeah. clients, right? Like financial advisors aren't going to be going out there and having 30 minute intro calls with college students because they're not even in a, a position to do anything with them, right? So like, why would you do that with an advisor that's in the same boat? Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it takes practice. I tell people, you know, practice with really low value advisors to begin with, you know, people that you think aren't going to really come through. And, and, and so, you know, don't, don't practice this on your, 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 your best prospect. Come on. Hello. You have to get uh, getting the words out of your mouth is very different than thinking, you know, what to say. And so that's as part of the the coaching that I do is, uh, you know, I give them homework and I say, you know, write down 
what you think you might say. And then we kind of pull that apart and they, they do it again. And, and um, you know, and then finally get comfortable with it. And then finally go, oh, my God, that works. And the deal is national sales managers often have also come up through the ranks. So they don't know what they don't know. And they will say things like, uh, you know, I, how can I serve you better? I'm going to serve you better. This is what are they in a restaurant? You know, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, the master and the servant. And how can you have confidence in somebody that you're dealing doing business with if you perceive yourself as lesser than they? Um, it doesn't mean you have to go in and, you know, be a blustery and over overdo it. But yeah, not, not, let's not overcomplicate what we're doing here. We have investment products that are a small part of your practice. I'm not trying to come in here and say that, um, you know, God's gift by helping you out, but we don't necessarily have to be waiting on your beg and call. Like a lot of, a lot of teams kind of have, because you realize how much the, uh, what's the phrase there? The, uh, carrot in the stick situation going on there where like big FA, big advisor does a lot of business. Let's cater to him, you know? So that's kind of been the perception him or her, I should say. You're, Absolutely right. And I think that uh, I, I've seen it with and we talked about this just a little bit earlier about, you know, relationship is important. And there's a guy at a I wish I could name the firm, but I can't. But it was a very, very, very large firm. And I was shocked because I went in and this guy was answering the phone. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. So what's what's shaking today? And that was the bravado of many external wholesalers who happened to be quite successful um, because their success was based on bringing information that the advisors could not get elsewhere. And once advisors were able to get that information that used to be on the fact sheet that, you know, once they were able to get that through portfolio managers and all that stuff, that just kind of doesn't work. And advisors don't have time for it. But no, so not at all. You know, I, I... Going back a ways, but that's uh, it, it, it surprisingly still exists because senior External wholesalers have developed have developed relationships over a long period of time and tend to have people that will continue to give them money. So they have not had to learn different skills, if that makes sense. And it makes so, complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the so the internals go. How, how do I get there? And. Which is, so this probably is going to lend right into the discussion we're about to have about the changing of the role and the blending between externals, hybrids, and internals. My question that I would ask, at what point does that demographic and cons like business term, consumer preference shift enough where nobody cares that the wholesaler is the primary conduit of information that they can read online or read on their own in a quick search? Like the, the advisors that I worked with, the only ones that cared for that like really long in-person meeting were ones that were above the above the age of like 60. The guys that were 40 years old building their own practice, they were like, hey man, like I get this information. 
when I need something, I'm going to ask you like, we like, here's where we work together. Here's where we don't, but it was very seldom ever a review of the quarterly fact sheet and update. And a lot of those legacy practices were building that and the internal used to aspire to have that be their career trajectory, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. So maybe I'm just totally random rambling here. I'm not sure if that you're tracking that at all, but it's like, what is that next iteration when the advisor doesn't need the wholesaler at all for that direct communication to their products quarterly update or changes on a fact sheet? Well, it's it, it's interesting because the research that that's out there and Fuse does a lot of this research, and they are showing that advisors still want wholesalers, but they want wholesalers that have a different conversation. So, uh, you know, they want them to bring what else? They want them to bring, I hate to say like sales ideas, but yeah, sort of what, you know, what works with people or how do you work with different clients differently? So I see it very much as a as a coaching role that advisors appreciate. And I agree with you that it is the younger ones uh, that tend to, you know, unless you unless you can like. Uh, get me to pay attention quickly and not with performance, um, then I really don't have any time for you. But if you bring me a resource, for example, like a new use of technology that will save me a ton of time, I'm going to pay attention to you. Or if you are a connector, that's like, a, a very important tactic, you know, knowing people in the industry and, oh, how, you know, this is a guy you should talk to. Those are the kinds of things that aren't the value adds that the marketing department comes up with. And so, uh, you know, it, it, the, the value adds are the same, too, across, you know, OK, teach me how to do LinkedIn. Well, yeah, that works in a lot of cases. But if you want to if you want the big guys if you want the guys that uh, are really going to do business with you, you can't even rely on that. You really need to rely on how does an entrepreneur become successful outside of the product that they offer. And that is what makes them different. But I wanted to go quickly back to one of your one of your questions is that is people over one of your comments, which I thought was the right thing. People over 60, you know, are going to do it. There's a lot of flexing that has to be done. I used to, you know, for people that were covering the South. There's a culture. That's a different ballgame. They want to do their thing first. And, and so people were saying, no, it can't be that abrupt. And that is true. But it's moderating it. It's how you start to change that conversation after you say, how is the barbecue and how is, you know, uh, is that? And, and or, you know, I definitely want to talk about the new baby. Let's do business first and then let's get caught up. Everybody's a little bit different, which which makes it very challenging to say, here's the ideal solution. So that you always have to know what that person might want. That's definitely one of those like emotional intelligence or people skills factor. I can give a quick anecdote. This is like a month ago. It was, it was uh, my wife's birthday. So we went out to dinner and it was like a random table seating. Yeah. And so we had no idea who was there. It's very like eight, it's only like eight people there. 
I just yeah. so happened to be sitting next to this financial advisor who was above the age of 60 and he was in town from Louisiana. So I'm up in here in Boston and only person in the place that's got a Southern accent. And so of course we make our way and I was like, oh, well, what, what do you, what do you like wholesalers to do? And his response was just like you said, he's, he's more of the relationship person. He's like, I, he's like, I, I'm sad. They're not coming around anymore. Like they used to come around all the time post pre COVID. And I'm like, well, this is so funny because he's the person whose door you probably do want to knock on. And then you've got all these other people that are not really open to that. So it's like anything, there's no perfect answer. There's no perfect response. You have to be more flexible, which is what I think you're getting at and understanding how to deal with all of these different personalities and all the way that people are interacting today. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, uh, and the one thing that I tell uh, internals, especially to watch out for something that I call happy ears. And I say that there's an inverse correlation uh, between advisors that are really nice and, you know, say, oh, yeah, I'm going to take a look at it and seem like really excited um, and their ultimate willingness to buy because people don't want to say no and they don't want to hurt the wholesaler's feeling. And you seem like a nice guy. And I bet you're, you know, I know you're getting going up in your career, but uh, and they let that go on for a long, long time. And so, uh, you know, you got to be right now, you really have to be deliberate enough and almost scripted enough in your last part of the conversation to say, okay, if there are next steps, what do you see as a next step? Aside from, of course, I know you need to think about it, but what would be a specific next step? that you think would make sense for us. And then you shut up. <laughs> and, you know, I, you don't give them the answer. That's what people do. They kind of go, yeah, well, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, no, there should be a specific next step. And you should ask them to do something like, could you come up with the three questions you'd like me to address in our next conversation? And maybe they'll do it and maybe they won't, but you don't ask, you don't get. And so being very specific uh, is, 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 is really a big part of the, the game. And again, I, I say that these are tactics that internal wholesalers typically don't get down to that tactical level of what do you actually say. They understand the concept and they got it but they don't have an, an awful lot of practice or an awful lot of help in starting to change those pieces of the conversation that will make it much more direct and shorten the sales cycle and ultimately get them, if they want, to an external position or uh, some other sales position in the organization or a support position that would help the organization really think about things. So yeah. AI isn't going to take over, you know, it's going to do a lot of the admin stuff. And it, it, it means that external wholesalers are going to be asked to really know what their CRM is. And, and the leg up that internal wholesalers have is they know that CRM and they can work it very quickly. They are amazing at it. And so uh, you, you firms should start to look at in staffing, okay, as opposed to just reducing staffing, maybe there are some people that need to be exchanged. 
and uh, and and that's why I was so excited when hybrids came along. And I said, "Oh my God, what a great position!" But it's probably one of the hardest positions in the industry because you have to do it all. And so I, I did. Uh, I, I did actually. Uh, can I mention the firm? Um, well, yeah, I can because they did a good job with it. And we'll it was edit it. if we have to edit it out, we'll edit it out. <laughs> yeah, no, Voya uh, before they were Voya, um, and uh, you know there was a a national sales manager there that really got it, and he said, "I said, you know, <laughs> when hybrids came along, hybrids would introduce themselves as hybrids." They walk. They go to an advisor's office and they say, "I'm a hybrid. I'm a hybrid." <laughs> <laughs> They're like, "I am. Uh, I'm, I'm part human, part uh, traveling wolf that's on the road all the time." <laughs> I can't come to see you as often. And this was the conversation. So, uh, um, not because people weren't smart. It's just that. They never really put themselves in the other person's shoes and they never really had other language to to talk about it. You know, like, uh, you know, advisors are busier now. We're busier now. What we want to do is make sure we make the best use of the time we have together. And whether that's in person or virtually, we'll do it in a way that makes sense uh, business wise for you and for me. The conversation around hybrids touches on an aspect of the, the white paper that you wrote that it was written in 2020. I don't know if it was pre-pandemic or post-pandemic or during it, but it has certainly aged like a fine wine since now that it's almost 2024 and we're discussing it today. But one thing that really like I, I you felt can like compliment it, me. you can compliment me as much as you want. It's it's good. It's we'll good. Keep, we'll keep it going. It's very, very well done. Hit hit on a lot of points that audience members of the show have have given feedback on and topics they wanted to cover. And that's really that blending across the industry, well, not industry, across that sales hierarchy of external, hybrid, internal. I can only speak from my own experience, but there was such a sharp divide between what was an external role and what an internal role was. Some groups had hybrids and there was at least hope that you might get a hybrid role before you had to wait like 15 years to maybe have to move across the country. But after like so many, so many younger salespeople are just like, I, I'm more, I am just as capable as the external that's in the field. The only difference is I've never been given a chance to represent the territory the same way that they have. And that's like that hybrid role has been the attempt to fill that gap. But I'd, I'd be curious on your end, if you've been one, have you been coaching any hybrids or working with desks that are really pushing that out as a program and any of your general thoughts and perspective on the value that that role does have now in this more hybrid in-person virtual type work style? Yes, I have done a, a, a ton of work there and probably the most successful desks that I worked with, what they did was brilliant. And that was they, um, they changed the comp so that hybrids could make as much money as externals and they changed the goals. And to me, that's the first thing that needs to happen if a hybrid position is going to, to make it. And, uh, and and they also raised the internal comp. So they were very clear on what the roles were. And they were very clear on what the territories were. 
And the externals could not choose that. They were told. And so it sort of had to come down from on high because there was a total change in, in, uh, in the model. And they recognized going forward that uh, that was the way that it had to be. And so, of course, what you saw was hybrids began outperforming externals because they were more efficient use of time. They were not showing up all the time because they couldn't. And the metrics changed. And so I think that, 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 you know, ultimately where it's moving to is the hybrid model will be the wholesaler model the wholesalers that are left and whether they may have some, and I see firms do this, you know, small admin desks that are not uh, an internal that's matched with an external, but admin desk that does lunch meetings and, and that kind of stuff to, to well, I hate lunch meetings, but set up some meetings and some things that are time consuming for uh, the wholesalers, a lot of a lot of places did that. Uh, Pimco did that, and uh, it, you know it was just a smart thing to do because they realized that they were paying internal wholesalers way too much to do spreadsheets. And right. uh, yeah, that's like admin tasks that you that are really just blocking and tackling. Like that's probably more low. You can, that's lower cost labor. But yeah. I think we're but we're arriving at though is that there is incredible value in what the internal the, the next iteration of the internal role will be probably more responsibility ownership of certain relationships from the desk and with a little bit higher of a comp tier but the focus day to day isn't just setting up the lunch meeting for the external getting over materials through email all of that information and I have to say that unfortunately um, in I'm going to give it a number. 80% of the bigger firms uh, that I work with are um, not necessarily, you know, there is no consistency in what the role of the external is and what the role of the internal is. So one external may have somebody making appointments for them and another says, no, 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 no. I want to make all my appointments. I want to have that first conversation. And, and, and I want you to do spreadsheets and I want you to, you know, write my, the notes in my CRM, you know. And so you have this dichotomy of a wholesaling force that is using their internals in very different ways. And what I found at the top of these organizations is that there is a little fear of the successful externals. Oh, they totally. You want, want to rock the boat and they, you know, like, and so um, the best thing that I saw was that the, the externals would be let go that were not um, sort of following the, the, the rules, you know, with guidelines or their guardrails for it, but it's set up as an organization for efficiency and for productivity, not for preferences, because I can't do Excel. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, just ignoring the skills you don't have. And now I am not I'm not an Excel person, but at the same time, I have like I'm familiar with all the tools that are sales enablement related. So I'm not sitting here trying to make like macros and 
complex charts like a financial analyst would be. But at its base case, familiarity with CRM and sales and intimate tools should yeah. be par for the course. But I imagine if we were to pull the senior statesman across every single external distribution force, someone might not even fill out the survey because it's on Google Forms and they refuse to use like Google Forms. You know, like that's that's kind of where we're talking about for exiting the dark ages here. Well, it's funny because there was one firm that I worked with that I, uh, uh, the uh, national sales manager and actually the head of distribution recognized the importance of sort of walk the talk. And so the senior people needed to be able to not necessarily do that job, but know enough to coach. And so one day I brought the um, <laughs> the divisional managers and above into a room. And I said, um, I, I'd like you guys to show me how to use your CRM. And there were guys that didn't even know how to open it up. And so you say, okay, probably the most important thing you can have in a sales environment is a good CRM with not just data in it, but all the extra stuff that you want to know to personalize conversations. And how can these guys be, you know, anyway, you know what I mean? Well, I, well, I know I know exactly how they can be like that because anybody who is trying to protect their moat and say that I am the gatekeeper of this information, they're not going to place it into a firm-wide accessible tool that could effectively enable them to keep that information if that person no longer works at the firm. That's my own opinion on where that reluctance comes from in some of that information. I, I, I totally agree. And I think the, you know, the solution to that um, that I advocate is that you have to define what good is. You have to define what a good, good input into a CRM is. What should it include in the notes? Not just had a meeting, next step. There's got to be more to it. It, it. And that comes back to defining a good conversation when you're counting it for an internal wholesaler. If you ask an internal, many internal wholesaler teams now, define a good conversation, or in some cases they use the word contact. And they'll say, well, I got an appointment. And I'll say, well, how qualified was that person? Is this going to be a waste of time? You know, the internal should, uh, I, I can imagine anybody going on an appointment that has not qualified in some way. I mean, how expensive is that? And that goes on all the time now because they're still counting stupid stuff. They're counting how long will you counting talk time? God help me. You talk know time. Oh my God. <laughs> Marianne, Marianne, the funniest. Uh, <laughs> I, I record a lot of these podcasts, obviously, from my apartment. And my wife, my wife can hear this conversation now and she's smiling and laughing because at one of the desks that I work at, talk time was something that we had to get. And every Friday, earlier on in our relationship, we were dating. Guess who would get a phone call so that uh, I would get some talk time? <laughs> it was not an advisor that was trying to do business with me. <laughs> exactly. And so for every metric, people know the way around it. But exactly. Exactly. Difficult metric. So anytime you're just counting and you don't have a definition for what good is to count and you monitor that. And so, for example, a good conversation to me was, you know, you qualified, you uncovered a need, and you asked for a specific next step. And those are the things that you don't get to count it, 
unless you do that. And you don't get to count it unless that's in the CRM. What did you qualify for? You know, so a lot harder, uh, a lot fewer numbers, but a lot higher quality. And God, I hope the industry, you know, continues to move in a direction of kind of getting that. Let's hope. Conversations like this, the work that you're doing and the industry connections that you have, hopefully it's it's progress on a sliding scale, right? Uh, there's an ideal state and then there's a, a you know, maybe a falling behind state. Hopefully more people are progressing toward the ideal state. I hope so. Anything else that you wanted to comment just on like that role as an internal, maybe anyone that isn't internal right now listening in, how they should be viewing the direction of their role in their career? I think they shouldn't necessarily be depressed. Uh, I think that they should really grasp the AI and the technology and continue to get very, very good at that. And uh, I think that that's what's going to protect them because there may be something that's not called an internal, but it's called something else in the industry. And it may not be an external, but I think the most valuable people in the short term are the people that really are good at the technology, at the CRM, at making the connections and have strong sales skills. If you continue to if you continue to unlearn or replace some of the things that you're doing with some things that work now, you will be very valuable. That's fantastic advice. And even on that emotional side of things, don't get don't get too down on it. I can say without a doubt, the only reason I got through the phase of my career as an internal, because of some of my friends that were on the desk with me, some of whom I'm still very close with today, but it can be it can be a role where it's a little bit discouraging to wake up every day and think that you have to do the same thing. That's kind of like a meaningless just task to check the box. So if uh, outside of the, the technical advice, at least take the emotional advice there that, you know, you're, you're uh, we've got a community behind you. So reach out to the show, reach out to Marianne if we can ever help. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, so now we have to touch on this because artificial intelligence, technology, data, there's so much going on. Sometimes it can be crazy buzzwords. What are you seeing What's the best practice of things like artificial intelligence that you think are either currently in wholesaling or that are making their way to various sales desks? Well, it's interesting to me, and that is that artificial intelligence can, in fact, write a very good email, intro email, if you know the right prompts and how you, you know, set the tone for it. So if you, you know, uh, an email, write an email for me that uh, is conversational, is simple, is three sentences, and you know you put your criteria in there. That can save you a ton of time because you know. So it's those applications uh, like that, and also I think from a, a data uh, standpoint, is really practicing with those uh, those prospects that you don't know and. You know, so the initial conversation and how you get through to them and then being able to teach senior management what works, giving them the examples of, okay, here's what I do to use this data, because you're kind of teaching them how they have to teach everybody else. And that's how you're seen as valuable. Um, because you're not just doing it, you're coming up with ways to make things more efficient. 
and suggestions. And that should be what gets an internal to wake up in the morning and say, oh, my God, if I had if I had the big job, this is what I would do. And to bring that to the attention of people that can do something about it. And to leave a firm that doesn't have the leadership there that looks like it's ever going to change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm that, sure people, some people tuning in might be in, uh, might be in roles like that or at firms like that. But yeah, the, the, the email writing is definitely the most direct, easy to access use case for someone in sales leveraging any kind of AI. I guess I'm not really sure right now with firms what they're, if they were like, if they're building internal AI that the sales force would use, or if they're trying to enable something like a chat GPT or Grammarly or anything else to be downloaded and used by the sales teams. But you're right though, that like email structuring, I did, I did an episode like, I think it was almost what a year ago, whenever chat GPT like first came out. And in the episode, I just did a couple prompts that were basically like prospecting emails. And one of them, I just wrote like, do a 50 word email congratulating an advisor for being Baron's top 1000 or whatever. And what it spit out was much better than what I would have written. And I probably would have at least spent like 45 minutes to an hour on it. Exactly. And that is the simplest way, you know, do simple before you get complex. And the the prompts are going to change. The artificial intelligence is going to change just as the internet changed over time and got better and Google got better and all that stuff. So do it now with the correspondence and, and also, you know, anything you write, you should put through. So you can see how much better it is and how much time it saves. And you know I, the compliance stuff is 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 going to be always there. But I think that any kind of communication like that, or help me structure a meeting that covers X, Y, and Z, that is going to uh, intrigue an advisor who does this, and. You're just like amazed. I asked it once, you know, how do you sign a letter uh, that, you know, where you're always trying to say, you know, yours or best or regards, you know, and you ask them for 20 different ways to do it. And you go, oh, my God, I didn't think of that, you know, and it's just simple things. You're right, though, as far as the bigger picture application, you generate X amount of templates that garner this type of response or convert to this many meetings make that visible and available to everybody who's who's in that role make it make it available to each person like the best that i have seen maybe maybe you have a different experience because you've probably interacted with so many more teams than me but it's just yes. like it's siloed one morning an internal writes a message forwards the email to everyone hey this worked i got a few meetings yeah like that's a good way of collaborating but it's not as much kind of like data driven or easily created where you could go in and say this kind of messaging has been honed over hundreds of emails by this sales team and we've proven for it to work. So let's go like use this, that kind that kind of campaign. The campaigns are always just marketing says, we're going to go give this uh, white paper and then never, no responses come back. Exactly. And I think that that's part of the whole training process too. Onboarding. Okay. Does, is any of this in the onboarding? No. In many cases, there's not a good onboarding process or the onboarding is all about product. So, uh, you know, you start from the beginning and, uh, but 
I totally agree with you. There's got to be there's got to be a way that it comes down. They can see it quickly and they can use it as opposed to struggling and doing it one by one. So if you were if if today you were starting from scratch an internal sales desk and you had to put together the four things or the the first few things that are going to be most critical for onboarding and training let's say it's like the first week what are those topics that you're going to make sure get covered and i know it's going to be hard to give a quick answer on this but it's almost like i feel like what people need to be trained on is fundamentally different than what everybody in the industry gets introduced to right away right because it's like series 7 learn how to make a phone call here's what an advisor is but now you're dealing with all of these different tools and technology that are foundations to the role, but no one's trained on them. Recently, I worked with somebody and they said, uh, you know, they just arrived and, and they were going on the phones, but they didn't have any product knowledge. I said, that's the best thing that could happen because you get confused by product knowledge. You, you don't learn the fundamentals of what the conversation is if you have product knowledge to fall back on. And so that's the crutch that that always starts it. And so I would almost, um, you know, I would make sure that people understand uh, how inefficient product knowledge is. I'm not saying it succinctly, but uh, the initial training should not include product knowledge. And it should include the technology and how quickly you can use it and how productive it should be and what you should be writing in the CRM. And it's not necessarily a front-led course. It is a collaboration course where people learn from each other and what are the best practices that they can do. Obviously, they're best practices, but they have to learn by doing. So you start a job as an internal wholesaler and you're like, Okay, where how do I do this on the keyboard? How can you have a conversation? You know, I mean it's you have to practice that. And they usually have, you know, what, a half day on the CRM? And the CRM is the most important instrument in the job in terms of recording and remembering and personalizing. Eh. So um, that's what I would do. I would uh, also get people to understand the the value of process. And uh, process means conversation process, too. So it's not a scripted conversation, but uh, conversations have beginnings, middles, and ends. And the um, thing I would do initially is just focus on the uh, beginning of the conversation. Let them go on the rest of it. Have bring them back for that, but get them good on CRM and first part of the conversation and thinking about targeting and disqualifying Love because that. they get overwhelmed with you know oh yeah I go get to meet a portfolio manager that is not going to help them in their first week on the job. Probably not. No. It's nice, 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 nice thing. They should get to do it. It's a nice thing, but it it shouldn't be, um, you know, onboarding includes everything. Let's do onboarding specifically for this job. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and also certification. 
have a certification process that people need to demonstrate that they can do this. Have a certification process that they understand what targeting is. You know, and that's, I don't see any of that anywhere. All opportunities though, for when people come uh, come knocking on the door, if they want to, if they do want to work on that, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, uh, and, and so, and, and yeah, that it's, it's understanding the fundamentals of how the industry works now. And so you also have onboarding that's very old and stale and it's, people don't like to do it as time consuming. Yeah, and, and for for younger generations too it's you're they like in day three they're like um this is the job so you kind of have to really figure out engage someone quick let the younger generation realize like here's the path to progression and not lose them in just older styles of training and learning yeah because it's, you know the, the classic is shadowing now, and they sit next to somebody for a week and listen to them, and that's valuable. But then there's a big gap between, okay, now I'm on the phone. No, they should have them in a room with a coach and, and give them scenarios and do that kind of stuff so yep. that they feel more confident. That's what people always say after I do a training session. It's like, oh, my God, now I know a structure. And I go, yeah, isn't it a lot easier? So Just know, know the framework. But Marianne, this is, you've dedicated so much of your time to this specific industry and this role. It's really been a pleasure to have you share some of this. One segment, and I know we're, we've been recording for a while, but I want to close out on this because I do it with all of our guests. So when you're not spending your time hyper-focused on how to help salespeople and sales desk improve, what is life outside of work like for you? Any hobbies, passions, interests, or pursuits? Maybe any of the projects that keep you busy? I, well, I am fortunately or unfortunately a addicted skier. So that's why I have the place in Vermont. And so I'm looking at the weather a lot. And what happens now, because I can work remotely, uh, I can get a few runs in before I I uh, <laughs> get back to work. I you know, and I I do. I'm, I'm interested now in in doing a lot of travel. So that and family, you know, I do a lot of yoga. But I love to bring these skills to outside groups. Like I teach my yoga people communication skills, and they're like, oh my god, because everything works in their personal life. That that works on the job and Absolutely. so their relationships are better they can avoid more arguments or at least have the tools to know what's going on so that kind of gets me up in the morning too again marianne thank you so much we're going to link the article in the show notes here but for anybody else that might want to follow along with some of the work or blogs you've written maybe even get in touch what's the best way for them to find you you can certainly go to my website. Probably, you know, I just got a ton of free stuff on there and blogs that uh, a lot of internals and externals have found enormously helpful. And there's something that's called the Wholesaler Handbook, which has been around for a long time, but uh, it's still 
people think it's very good. And I go, well, it was written such a long time ago, but it still resonates with a lot of people. So especially for new internal wholesalers, I would say, take a look at that. It's not very long. It's not boring. And it's really just about mistakes and how you correct them. A timeless classic then. We'll uh, we'll make it part of required reading for new listeners to the show. <laughs> All right. Well, Marianne, again, thank you so much. I know it's uh, it's the end of a, a week here, so I hope you enjoy the weekend. You are officially welcome on the show whenever you would like. So if anything else uh, sparks your interest or you want to cover it, you let us know. We always have time for you on this podcast. Well, you were a great interviewer, and so the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening. Find us on Instagram at Internal Use Only Podcast or email us at internaluseonlypodcast at gmail.com.